Hebrews chapter 11, 23, ending at chapter 12, verses 3. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw him saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as for as of greater values than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead of his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell, after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lion, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses were turned into strength and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put into prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the, uh, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. That's the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the word of God. Let me add uh, my welcome to uh, that of Simon. My name's Phil. I'm minister here at 5pm. If you're here visiting, it's great to have you with us. You're joining us as we get to the end of the book of Hebrews. And although we've read an enormous amount tonight, uh, we looked at the whole of chapter 11 last week, and this week we're just looking at chapter 12. Uh, But given that chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore, it would be difficult to understand it correctly unless we read it in the context of 11. So fear not. I'm not going to have another go at preaching chapter 11. We are just going to stick to chapter 12. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us soft hearts that are willing to submit to your truth. 
and sharp minds that are ready to think clearly and hard. And we pray most of all that we would see the Lord Jesus more clearly and that what we learn tonight would enable us to trust him better. Amen. Uh, Christianity is basically a lot like drinking. It is. Uh, that's the way we view it in our culture. Um, it's, uh, it's okay to indulge the habit in small doses and at weekends, but if it starts to affect your relationships or your work, it's getting a bit out of hand. That's what we say, isn't it? As soon as you start to take Christianity seriously, as soon as you start to make Jesus more than just a weekend habit, people start to get concerned about you. So what on earth was Holly thinking earlier? I mean, did you read what she said and what she promised? Holly and the other four who were baptised this morning made extravagant promises about giving their whole lives to Jesus. In fact, the baptism was a symbol of them saying, my old life is dying in the water and I now have a brand new life with Jesus Christ. Without being rude, is she nuts? Are those of us here who follow Jesus and say he is our life, our everything, as Holly put it so memorably, have we lost the plot? Well, this passage in Hebrews 12 shows us why we haven't lost the plot if we treat Jesus as everything, if we put our faith, our trust in him. In fact, it's the wisest thing you could ever do. Once you've looked into the claims and worked out that the evidence for Jesus in the Bible is reliable, the evidence for his resurrection is trustworthy, bankable, then it is worth following Jesus with absolute, unbridled, unqualified devotion. Because, as we'll see in this passage, in the past, he has saved us from our sins, and in the future, he will soon return to bring his people with him to paradise forever. So let's uh, look at this passage together, page 1210, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. He's referring to that that parade of characters we just had read from the Old Testament that was uh, detailed in chapter 11. But the question is, how on earth is it encouraging to have an enormous crowd of great people watching every moment of your life? (laughs) In what sense is that even vaguely encouraging? Well, I think actually there are two ways in which we can understand these verses, what the witnesses are doing. And one will get us very confused and nervous, and one will will get us encouraged. A few years ago, I did a a cross-country ski marathon in Switzerland, which was a pretty bizarre experience. Uh, The hotel we were staying in was full of cross-country skiing fanatics, which meant uh, they all wore Ray-Ban aviators, had strange moustaches and mullets, and uh, lycra onesies that looked like they were borrowed from Mr. Blobby which is a cultural reference that won't work at 7 Uh, (laughs) p.m. For the younger folk here, Google Mr. Blobby after the service. Uh, Anyway, look, I can't ski downhill. I've never learnt to ski. It's not something I learnt to do. And cross-country skis are like downhill skis, except they're much thinner and they're only attached to your toe. So basically, they're almost impossible to stand up on. Which is not great news if you can't stand up on normal skis. And the race was on a beautiful Swiss valley. And it was basically flat for 42 kilometres. But there was one nasty uphill after 20 kilometres. And the bad news wasn't that there was an uphill section and you, you basically can't ski uphill. The bad news is that having gone up, 
you then have to go down. And the downhill was through a pine forest. Uh, The race organisers were kind, and they'd wrapped old mattresses round the trees. Uh, The trainer's advice was, point your skis down and try to avoid the trees. Now, the thing is, there was nowhere on that entire course that there were more witnesses, more people, than on that slope. They were just whooping and hollering and loving watching poor people getting battered, bounced from tree to tree. They loved it. And if that is the image here, all the great people from the Old Testament looking and and watching as you make an absolute wreck of your Christian life, trying to follow God and, and finding it as hard as we all do, then it's the stupidest chapter in the Bible. But the thing is, there was a second group of people on that course that day. In the last couple of kilometres, it was absolute agony. Uh, Your legs were cramping. I'd never been more than a kilometre on cross-country skis before. And we were in terrible, terrible shape. And you're wondering if you can actually make it. You're genuinely thinking, if I can give up now, I will. And then as you hit the last couple of kilometres, there's this other crowd... And they're not spectators, they're competitors who finish the race and come back along to say, come on, you can do it. And you see these guys, and they've already been there. They've crossed the line, they've completed the race. Some of them were were novices like me. And when you see that there are people like that who can do it, suddenly you believe that for all the cramp and the pain, you actually can make it. And that is what's going on here. These aren't witnesses watching your life. These are witnesses that are testifying to you. It is possible to make it. You can do it. They made it and so can you. See, that's the point of chapter 11. It's not that the Old Testament heroes are watching you for your mistakes. They're witnessing to you. There's Abraham. I mean, goodness. The guy pretty much let two other men marry his wife because he was so incapable of trusting that God would do what God had said. David commits murder and adultery. Gideon, Gideon is such a complete coward that an angel of the Lord appears in blazing glory and basically burns up the dinner he creates him with a flash of fire from his staff. And then every time God asks Gideon to do something, he says, well, how can I be sure you're really with me? I need some more miraculous proof, please, God. If Gideon can make it, we can make it. That's what chapter 11 is here to teach us. They are ordinary, fallible people in the Old Testament. And yet, and yet, they're on the other side of the finishing line. They're cheering us on. They're telling us, you can make it. See, the Old Testament is not meant to be a whole list of perfect people, examples, paragons of faith for us to live up to and feel bad when we're not as good as them. The Old Testament is, is basically got three purposes. Firstly, to point us to Jesus Christ. That's its primary goal. Secondly, to teach us through example after example that God is faithful. And third, to encourage us that this God is able to take fallible, weak, changeable, worldly people like you and me and to forgive us and transform us and bring us safely into his kingdom and even more amazing perhaps, to use us 
to serve him and his purposes in this world along the way. So I sometimes uh, hear people say to me, look, I could never be a Christian. Usually what they mean is the standards of God, the moral standards I read about in the Bible are just too high. There's no way I can go through life keeping those those standards, living like Jesus. You see, Christianity is not an exam for you to pass. It is a promise of rescue for people who fail. It's not an exam for you to pass. It's a promise of rescue for those of us who fail. That is why, if you look in your service sheet, you will see, what did we do before the last song? We confessed our sins together. Because Christians fail. But God forgives. And so, in view of all the examples of chapter 11, we are to do two things. Uh, Firstly, we are to ditch the sin and run the race. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Christian life is a running race. It is not a Usain Bolt 100-meter sprint. It is a Mo Farah marathon. It requires perseverance. And if you talk to somebody here who's been a Christian for decades rather than months or years, they will tell you it does not get any easier. It is still tough. Now, at different stages in our lives, different things are a struggle. You know, get to the age of 85 and the sexual temptation that, as rightly has been described, as like being uh, handcuffed to a lunatic, it, it goes. But other struggles are there. You talk to 85-year-olds and... Well, there are different things. Stubbornness, intolerance, and an unwillingness to change get much, much deeper at that age. And if you've ever trained properly for a long-distance running race, you will know that running 13 or 26 miles, it never gets easy. It never becomes, oh, you know, it's just a marathon. It is always hard, but what happens is that as you train, you become fit. And that is what happens... As a Christian, it will not get easy. Holly, I'm sorry. If people have told you it'll be easy, they're lying. I hope they haven't told you. I know they haven't told you that. And I know you know that. But you do get tougher. You do find that when you've persevered for a while, when you've been through trials, you're better able to face the next set of trials when they come. So keep going. Keep going. Now, one little thing that we often miss out from the end of this verse, before we look at the two commands in the middle, is the race, do you see what it says there? Marked out for us. Now, he's not saying that um, God gives each of us a a sort of roadmap for life. Uh, The Bible never tells us that that happens. We live by faith that God is in control. And uh, we follow him, we obey his word, and we trust that he's in control. We don't live by Holy Spirit satnav, being told you know, what decision to make every second of every step of the way. We live by faith. But what it means is that God marks out the course. We don't get to change it. I don't know if you read about the guy who uh, seems to have cheated in the London Marathon this year. Uh, nothing's been proven, so I better be careful what I say. Either... Jason Scott Williams ran the second half of the course in one hour and one minute, significantly faster than Mo Farah, or he jumped the bridge, uh, the barrier at Tower Bridge and rejoined the race about 15 miles later. Yeah. 
when he was contacted by the papers, uh, he told them to... Anyway, if I... <laughs> he's pretty angry about being, having, being found out. Because he knows that if he's found to have been cheating, his name will be scrubbed out of the record books. He will no longer be listed as a finisher. Right. It's fair. He didn't run the course. Of course he doesn't get to keep his medal and claim to be a finisher. And you and I do not get to change the course. We can't decide just to jump the barrier when, you know what, God's standards are just too difficult. I'm just going to ignore this one. Or it's just too costly obeying Jesus here. Or, you know what, I'll run the bits that make sense to me. But when it doesn't make sense to me, I don't see why I should obey God there. No. If I find it really hard to do what Jesus says and forgive and love people who've hurt and even hate me, I don't get to just opt out of that one. If I'm struggling to be sexually pure in the supercharged atmosphere of London, I can't just say, I think I'll just take a shortcut just for this bit of the course. If I, I just find it difficult to be sacrificially generous with my time and my money when life is so pressured. I can't just say, I'll cut the corner here. God's word sets out the course. And we follow his rules. It's the way it works. We cannot expect God's prize unless we run God's course. And if we're going to run the course God has set for us, then we'll need to do the things that are commanded in the first half of that verse. Do you see there? To throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. To carry on the marathon metaphor, if you saw Mo Farah turn up for the beginning of the marathon and he's wearing a pair of huge chunky Timberland boots, massive pair of baggy jeans, a parka jacket, and in one hand he's got a big load of heavy shopping and in the other hand he's stuffing his face with Domino's pizza you would conclude Mo you're not very serious about this run are you I mean who who really wants to finish the race well does that likewise if you heard that there were a group of other runners who said their stated aim was to trip him up push him off knock him about you'd think why are you running with them if you saw he he was running alongside them What is going on then? Uh, What is the imagery telling us? Well, the first set of things, uh, everything that hinders, are perhaps more interesting. Because it's clear they're not sinful in and of themselves. There's nothing inherently wrong with them, the Bible says. They may even be fine and helpful for others, but for you and me, they hinder. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul talks about this sort of thing when he says, I have the right to do anything. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Okay, what sort of stuff has he got in mind? Well, I think there could be almost anything, to be perfectly honest here. But let me just give two examples. Uh, One might be alcohol in our culture. The Bible is clear. There is nothing sinful about alcohol. Psalm 104.15 describes it as a blessing from God. But... For some of us, alcohol is a source of trouble. It's not a sin, but we find it difficult to drink without getting into trouble. And it may be that we would be better off avoiding alcohol entirely. 
it hinders. I'm not saying it's a sin, give up alcohol, everybody. I'm saying if for you it's something that causes you to stumble, then maybe you should think about getting rid of it. Another might well be media. Let's be careful, I'm not saying let's all become Amish. But it's worth asking, given the sheer volume of information and advice that is pouring into our ears and eyes every day, it's worth just stepping back and saying, are these what I want to be the most dominant voices going around my head? Do I want them to be the loudest voices of advice in my life? You know, the TV that just, yep, there is great stuff on TV, but so often what we watch just feeds our worldly desires and dulls us to the reality of eternity. Or Facebook, that just grows a sense of discontent in us so often. Yep, Facebook can be great, but... You know that most people are less happy, objectively, after looking at Facebook as I compare my life with their shiny happy people, with their relationship status updates and their ultrasound pictures and their holiday snaps. It's worth asking. If it doesn't help, why not cut it out? The second command is to cast off the sin that so easily entangles, and that is such an apt description of the ugly desires that still lurk in the dark corners of all our hearts. We think we're in control of uh, the lust and the materialism and the pride and the selfishness that's in us. And many of us have changed a lot since we started to follow Jesus. And we think, I don't cause any public disgrace. Things are under control. I'm mature enough. I'm savvy enough to handle what's going on. You see, sin doesn't work like that. Sin is never happy to be a servant. Sin always, only, ever wants to master you. It is always trying to spread its influence. Sin is never happy to be allowed just into this room. You're welcome to stay in this room of my life. Just please stay there. Sin has tentacles. It reaches out into other areas of our life. It reaches out and affects the people around us. It has consequences you and I can't see and just could never imagine, to be perfectly honest. And it never, ever quite does what we thought it would do, what it seemed to promise on the, on the packaging. It won't just rot your soul. It'll also infect those around you. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. If we're serious about running the race, you and I need to learn to stay well clear of the ragged nets that trip us up and the baited hooks of sin, that reel us in. Secondly, focus on Jesus. The great cloud of witnesses are not there staring at us, and nor actually do we finish the race primarily by looking at them. It is encouraging to see that they've made it to the end, but that shouldn't be the primary focus, interestingly, we see. See, the men and women listed in chapter 11 did not endure by looking at each other. And we don't endure by looking at each other or even at them. We endure by looking at Jesus. Let us, verse 2, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that in that little verse, we're told three things about Jesus that we're to fix our eyes upon. Three things. He is the author of our faith, he's the perfecter of our faith, and he's our example of faith. 
First, if you want to keep going, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus as the author of faith. Now, what on earth does that mean? It means author as in the creator, the initiator, the one who starts and begins and causes things. You see, basically, the end of the story was already written for every single one of us. The end of the story has already been written for you and me. We live in God's world, if you're like me, ignoring our creator and king. We act like we have the right to decide what's right and wrong. We act like I am the captain of my soul, the master of my fate. And other people that God created in his image for us to love and enjoy and serve, well, we we use them. They're either vehicles to be used to get me to what I want or their barriers to be trampled on to get to what I want. And God is good. In fact, he's goodness, he's truth and beauty and love and justice. And he will not stand idly by while we behave like that. He cannot tolerate that wickedness. And so he erected a great barrier between us and him. And if we live our lives with our backs turned to him on the other side of the barrier, then when we die, the sentence will become final and we'll be cut off from him forever, which is so awful the Bible calls it eternal death or hell. And that is our destiny. That is the final line in the book of every one of our lives. But Jesus... The author of our faith wrote a new chapter. He ripped out the end chapter of our lives and he wrote an entirely new chapter. In love and in mercy, he came down to earth. God the Son became a human being and he died on a cross paying for the way that you and I treat God and treat other people. And he died to absorb the punishment for our sin and to break the power of sin over us. And his death has punched a hole through the great barrier, meaning that the way is open for us to God. He is the author of faith. He has written us a new final chapter in which we get to be with God forever, forgiven and enjoying his paradise. We didn't ask him to do it. It was his idea. He initiated it. He is the author of faith. And at the end of history, he will show himself also to be the perfecter of faith. That doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the the cross didn't quite work and like a dodgy builder, he's got to come back to redo the job that he didn't do right the first time. No, we're fully and perfectly forgiven. But the truth is that we still live with the physical consequences of a sinful world and our sinful hearts. Spiritually, by faith, we're washed clean in God's eyes. But look out in the world in a world where there's gang rape in India, where there's murder in Britain, where there's civil war starting in Ukraine, it's obvious that things haven't yet been made perfect. And look inside, in our hearts, the selfishness and the filth that's still there, even for those of us who call ourselves Christians. But one day, one day Jesus is going to come back and the world will be transformed and you and I will be transformed too. He is the perfecter of the faith he authored, which is to say he paid for the tickets back then. The flight is booked and one day soon he will come and he will usher us onto the plane and take us to paradise. Thirdly, Jesus is the example for our faith. Now, we don't copy him in everything. 
We don't die on a cross for the sins of the world. None of us could. And we don't receive the praise and worship of everybody. None of us should. He is different from us in some ways. But I sometimes wonder whether... um, Sometimes we emphasize the fact that Jesus is fully God so much that we forget he's also fully man. Not half and half, but fully man as well as fully God. That means this, it was a real man. Dare I even say an ordinary man who resisted temptation Every single day of his life. It was a real man who watched as the crowds who worshipped him started to melt away. And eventually even his 12 closest friends turned their backs on him, deserted him and denied him in public. It was a real man who knelt down to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and realised that all of the disciples were asleep. And it was dark and it was quiet and no one would know if he got up and walked away. It was a real man who endured that brutal beating, spitting in his face, the stripping of his clothes, the nailing onto the cross in agonizing pain and shame. And for hour upon hour hung there every moment resisting the overwhelming temptation to use his power as God to just annihilate everybody and end it. But somehow that man endured. Why? For the joy set before him. The joy of being your saviour. That's why he did it. To bring pleasure to his father and salvation to you and to me. So verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so you will not grow weary and lose heart. When God calls us to endure and to keep going, to not turn away, to not give in to the sinful temptations that seem to offer so much more than, than obeying God offers. And when the road just seems far, far too hard for you and for me, we need to remember Jesus, the man, has already walked this road. And he walked a much harder road because he walked it alone and you and I will never walk it alone. Because he is with us now by his spirit every step of the way. He is strengthening, supporting, and encouraging us. So Holly is not an idiot. And neither is anybody who puts their trust, their whole trust, their total devotion, their unswerving, undying obedience on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is worth decisively saying, I will follow him as the direction of my life. I will trust him for my forgiveness. I will trust him for life in the face of death. And it is worth it too in the daily decisions of life as we weigh up, do I obey God or do I disobey God? Do I go the easy way or the right way? It is worth it because look at Jesus. Look at him on the cross, paying for your sins. You're free. Look at him enduring. It is possible And look at him now, ready to return. It will be worth it. For he is already in heaven, 
delighting and glorying in the presence of God the Father. And one day we will be with him. Let's pray. Our Father God, if we're honest, we find it a struggle, those of us who would call ourselves Christians, to trust you. We find it hard to obey you. And so we pray that we would be encouraged as we, uh, as we look at the Old Testament and as we look around at church and see other ordinary, fallible, struggling people somehow still going, still trusting you. But we thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. The one who came down and has destroyed the power of sin and death over us. The one who has already won us forgiveness. The one who one day will bring us home to glory. And the one who shows that it is possible to serve you, to obey you, and to keep going. Amen.